The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. So this is your opinion of me. Thank you for explaining so fully. Perhaps these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my honesty and admitting scruples about our relationship. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your circumstances? And those are the words of a gentleman. From the first moment I met you, your arrogance and conceit, your selfish disdain for the feelings of others made me realise that you were the last man in the world I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. Forgive me, madam, for taking up so much of your time. That's Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden playing Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy in one of many, many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, the classic Jane Austen novel. This novel is over 200 years old, and it is still a beloved part of the literary canon, admired by critics, revered by fans, and continually inspiring readers and essayists and authors and filmmakers around the world. Why is that? How does the novel work? What draws us to it today? We're looking at the accomplishment and legacy of Pride and Prejudice today on the History of Literature. Let's get started. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Find more at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. We're still giving away free postcards to all who ask for one while supplies last. These are nice literary postcards. I'll leave that to your imagination, unless you're one of the lucky ones who have already received one. Just do something nice for the show first. If you want, write a review, tell some friends, recommend it on Facebook or your blog, Click the five-star button on iTunes. It's up to you. There's lots of ways to do something nice for the show. Or just send in the email with your address, jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. And we're sponsored today by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com. H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, an mp3 player do they have pride and prejudice of course they do i recommend the version narrated by rosamund pike which is excellent but there are plenty of others too take your pick compliments of the history of literature and audible trial that's www.audibletrial.com slash h-o-l okay pride and prejudice today our listeners have been clamoring for this one I'll tell you about my own experience with Pride and Prejudice and some things you might not know about this classic book. This really is a classic, and it really is worthwhile. I know we've had some shows of books you don't need to read, great books, lists of great books, and another show where Mike and I attacked in particular the list of great books for college-bound readers. Literature is like a dusty old museum sometimes. There are some cobwebs, but not on this book. Pride and Prejudice is still fresh and funny and smart. It's 200 years old. That's so old for a work of literature, especially one that has humor. Chronologically, it's as close to Shakespeare as it is to us. I mean, if you take a timeline with Shakespeare on one end and us on the other, Pride and Prejudice is right in the middle. And yet, it doesn't feel half as old as Shakespeare. And it's not just the English language, which changed much more between Shakespeare and Austen than it has between Austen and us. Jane Austen is at the forefront of that wonderful literary vehicle known as the novel, and in particular, the novelistic device known as free indirect style, which we'll go into. I think it's worth talking about because I think it's the hallmark of Jane Austen's genius, and also the secret ingredient, one of the key reasons why the novel is still so savory. It's why Jane's father, we'll talk about Jane's father and how he recognized the special genius of his daughter. It's a nice part of the story. Free indirect style. And Jane Austen's comedy, her irony, the book still feels fresh. Jane Austen could be writing brilliant novels today and wouldn't need to update much of her style. But it's because of her that this is true, I would argue. Her example has given us this legacy. 
She created it in some ways, she perfected it, and we have all followed. Literature has a thousand fathers and mothers. She's one of them. Childless in real life, in literature, Jane Austen had six children, her novels, and many, many grandchildren. But first, let's hear from another listener. Okay, this one comes from Pauline. Subject line, thoughts from a sunburnt country. Dear Jack, it's early evening, but the sun is still high in the Australian summer sky. I'm taking my daily walk along the country lanes surrounding the small New South Wales town in which I live. Cattle in the paddocks, cockatoos in the trees. Today, headphones clamped to my ears, iPhone in my back pocket. I am keeping company with you. Chuckling along at your wry observations about a couple of lively pirates. This was right after our Robinson Crusoe episode. Dampierre has a special place in Down Under history because of his fine skills as a mapmaker, the first to draw the outline of our continent. I recently read a biography of his turbulent life. What a wild madman he was. And Selkirk, too, another outsider, ill-made for polite society. What happens to boys like them in our constrained age? I don't know. Maybe they become podcasters. Who knows? My favorite Defoe, she continues, is A Journal of the Plague Year. Such a marvelous piece of semi-reportage. But I love Maul and Robinson, too, despite the troubling anachronisms, as you say. So you two have traveled far across the sea to me, and I am enjoying your company. Recent favorites of your programs, Mary Shelley. How sharply observant you have become. Now you are subjected to your new political reality. Yeah. Certainly true. Great literary endings and bad poetry, but I enjoy them all. Then she talks about the bad poetry episode and gives an idea for a show, Literary Hoaxes, which is a great idea. And she concludes, thank you for your podcast. Hopefully we will walk these dry and dusty byways together into the future. Pauline. Yes. Yes, I love these emails. And now I can add to my visualizations of listeners along with our post office worker in Sweden and our English student in Hong Kong, our English teacher in Syria, our treadmill runner in Alaska, and the gnarled mango tree walker in Puerto Rico and Peru, the dusty byways of Australia, with cattle in the paddocks and cockatoos in the trees. So much better than the Jack Wilson Studios in the outskirts of Washington, D.C., where the cockatoos aren't in the trees. They all run for office. Thanks, Gar, and my thanks to Pauline. I'm very glad to have you as a listener. Okay, Pride and Prejudice coming right up. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This is such a wonderful book. You know, it's like the Hamlet of novels. You can choose another novel as the greatest of all time. Maybe you like Ulysses. But if you make a top ten or a top five, it's hard to leave Pride and Prejudice out. And if someone else chooses it as number one on their list, it's hard to argue with them. They love this book in Australia. They polled 15,000 readers for the best book ever written, and Pride and Prejudice came in first. 
In 2003, the BBC conducted a poll for the UK's best-loved book. Pride and Prejudice finished second. The Lord of the Rings came in first. Remember that the trilogy, the filmed versions, came out in 2001, 2002, and 2003. So, a lot of publicity. That might have been the peak of the Lord of the Rings popularity. I suspect that in other years, Pride and Prejudice might have finished first as well. It's had an incredible legacy. I can't begin to name all of the television and film versions and all the sequels and inspired by books like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is the, the current version. The plot line often shows up, maybe most famously for us, in Bridget Jones's Diary. The plot is not simple. A lot happens. But at its core, at the beating heart of the book, it is simple. Two people meant for one another must overcome their pride and prejudice. That's the story of Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet. That's really it. Now, some people say that Mr. Darcy is pride and Elizabeth Bennet is prejudice, but really, they're both proud and they both exhibit prejudice. The first title of the book was First Impressions, and that would have been a good title as well, if a little less sharp than Pride and Prejudice. Mistaken First Impressions. That's at the heart of the story. The title Pride and Prejudice comes from a passage in a novel by Fanny Burney. The phrase is repeated several times, and it's in all caps. Must have resonated with young Jane, who also was enjoying the success of Sense and Sensibility. Pride and Prejudice has got a similar flavor to that. We know she enjoyed Fanny Burney. She and all of her family members, all the Austins, were great readers. They also acted out plays. You can see the legacy of theater in much of Jane Austen's work, which has long stretches where dialogue and minimal description practically stage directions, drive the narrative. Novels were then in their very early stages. They were a few decades old, but already they were showing their promise. They were viewed as extremely entertaining. The chance to follow the path of a person as he or she made their way through life. We saw how Robinson Crusoe quickly became a bestseller. But that book really came out of a kind of essayist or journalistic tradition. By the time young Jane was exploring the books in her father's library, other novelists had breathed more life into the form. Samuel Richardson and Henry Fielding were very popular. In some ways, the novelists of the 18th century pushed the features of a novel out too far, tilting the human dilemma toward melodrama. Novels, to take the form we know them as today, needed a genius to pull them back, to make the dilemmas not quite so unbelievable and the characters not quite so cartoonish to make them recognizable and subtle, and to put us in the minds of characters with whom we identify. Carol Shields, who wrote an excellent short biography of Jane Austen, says that the characters in Jane Austen are intelligent women who take themselves seriously but not solemnly. That's a wonderful description. Jane Austen inspires a deep devotion among her greatest fans, like Carol Shields, as does Shakespeare and, say, Star Trek. And for a similar reason, I think, you can go to Jane Austen conventions and you can get everything from scholars to textual analysts to historians to hardcore fans wearing period clothing. When you read Jane Austen, you want to live in her world. That's what I mean by comparing her with Shakespeare and Star Trek. You want to be there. You want to be part of the family. You want to be there at the ball, exchanging witty remarks, feeling the disappointments and coming back from them feeling the excitement of the gossip of watching new relationships bloom. It's also why we want to know more about Jane Austen herself. We don't know a lot. We have some letters. We have some accounts of others. She was the seventh of eight children born in a family that was not rich, but was well-respected where they were, living in a small town of Hampshire, which, for those of you who might not know, is a county on the southern coast of England. She herself was intelligent, that's an understatement, and close to her sister, Cassandra. We see relics of this in Pride and Prejudice, of course, the love between the sisters, especially Elizabeth's sister, Jane. It's a book about a family, the Bennets, but as much as we may love the mirthful father and admire or appreciate the doggedness of the mother who's trying to get her daughters married, it's really told from the, the perspective of the generation of the daughters. The daughters make the important decisions. The daughters are the cool ones. The daughters are fighting to live life. Jane was 21 when she finished the first draft of Pride and Prejudice. She was a daughter, 
surrounded by her sisters, all coming of age. She lived a fairly short life. By the way, she died at 42, having written six novels and having changed the world. It's maddening how little we truly know of Jane. Biographers often turn to the novels to try to increase what we know about her life through speculation. But let's save that for our episode on Jane Austen. And instead, let's jump into Pride and Prejudice, especially its key innovation, the free indirect style. But first, let me sketch out the plot for those new to the book or for those who could use a refresher. The quick version of the plot summary is to say that it's about a man and a woman coming to see the error of their initial impressions of one another and realizing that they are in love. The novel begins in the household of the Bennets, a family with five unmarried daughters, and a mother who urges her husband to call on a new man who has come to town, Mr. Bingley, in order to start the process of finding a match with one of her daughters. Now, in some ways, that that's whole sentence tells you what it, that's what you're going to get. Think about what, where that will take you, that initial dilemma that puts everything into motion. The daughters, the five daughters, will all have di- different personalities, different tastes, different chances and opportunities. The men in the village and those who newly arrive will prefer certain daughters over others. The neighbors, unmarried women, are rivals. Fortunes are important. Households need money and marrying into a comfortable or a wealthy household matters. We'll see the socioeconomics of the families as they encounter one another, and the flirting and courtships, and the clashes of the men and women as they look to get married, and the generations of people who are loyal to their family members, who have hopes and dreams on their behalf, and who sometimes clash as well. That's the world you need to be ready for. In fact, I won't give you all the summary of the twists and turns, because really they don't matter. I'm just telling you that the world of the novel and what's at stake. Jane Austen knows how to develop her plot and reveal information when needed and put characters in the right dramatic moment. The wheels of the plot turn like the gears of a Swiss watch. But it's not important to us now for our purposes. What's important is the art of the narration, the storyteller, her attitude toward the story, and the style in which she writes it. This brings me to the free indirect style. What is free and direct style? I know, it's like the phrase iambic pentameter. It makes literature sound more clinical than it is. Let's say you have a first-person story. That story writes itself, doesn't it? I did this, I did that. I thought this, I thought that. The storyteller could be sitting in the chair opposite you. I was born in an orphanage. Everyone teased me because of my red hair, but I didn't care. Frankly, I was so busy worried about my next meal, I didn't have time to listen to a bunch of nine-year-olds with a bias against redheads. Dot, dot, dot. That's so natural, the first person. We hear the voice of the narrator. We hear that he has red hair. It's a physical description that the author has slipped in. We hear his attitude, what he cares about, what he doesn't care about, how he survives, how he thinks. That could be in Robinson Crusoe, the early novel we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Time shifts are easy. The only thing hard about first person is knowing how to get into another person's head, and sometimes you can't. You kind of have to explain how you would know what someone else is thinking, but you're still seeing it through the perspective of the first person narrator, so that's slanted. You can't really be in the head of someone else when you're in first person. Third person is different. It's easy to get at a person's physical description with third person. You would just say, Stuart had red hair. That's easy. Dialogue and action are as easy as a description. Stuart said this. Stuart said that. Stuart, <laughs> Red-headed Stuart came down the steps and said X. But the thoughts can be clunky. At least before the Jane Austen shift, they were particularly clunky. Here's how it tended to be done in the earliest fiction. Stuart came down the stairs for breakfast. Eggs again, he muttered to himself. I wish we didn't have to eat eggs all the time. The thoughts are literally spoken aloud. Or we might get... Stuart walked into the kitchen. His mouth dropped open. Eggs again, he thought. Why are we always eating eggs? Can't we have frosted flakes now and then? Still a thought. I put that in quotation marks. We are permitted to enter Stuart's head, but we do so almost in brackets. It might be with quotation marks or italics but it's the narrator stopping, announcing that a thought of some kind is coming out of Stuart's mind, and then the thought. 
We never lose our distance with the narrator. We're always on the side of the storyteller. We're always being given access to the thoughts as if it's being presented to us. Now let's use a real example from Jane Austen. This Now, Jane Austen is not the first example of this in all of literature, but she's credited as the first one to use it consistently. That was a textual analysis that was done, concluded, as many people already suspected, that Jane Austen was the first to really recognize the power of this. And I'd argue that it's hard to find an earlier example who's better at it, who understands the subtle benefits of this development and how to make it work on the reader. This is from Chapter 4 of Pride and Prejudice. Until now, we've gotten dialogue and description. It could really be a play, the first three and a half chapters. We know the Austin family produced plays for fun. Jane was no stranger to plays. What do I mean by this? We get, I mean, we get dialogue and description. We occasionally get an author who steps in just like a stage direction or perhaps a, a Greek chorus, a narrator on the side. But we're not really in the head of any particular character. We're not given access. We're not given that window. We're enjoying getting to know them and seeing how the characters interact with one another and how funny the relationship of the parents are. Mr. Bennett teases his wife and his favorite daughter, Elizabeth, who he tells us is especially quick. And Mrs. Bennett isn't really in on any of the jokes, which is part of the family dynamic and part of the fun for us as readers. And then... In chapter four, it's as if the author taps one of the characters on the shoulder and waves at us and says, this one, this one, this is going to be the one through which I'll tell the story. Elizabeth, the father's favorite, the one we've been told is a little quicker than the others, a bright spark, a diamond in the rough. Let's see what she thinks about all this. And so we get this paragraph. Elizabeth listened in silence, but was not convinced. Their behavior at the assembly had not been calculated to please in general, and with more quickness of observation and less pliancy of temper than her sister, and with a judgment too unassailed by any attention to herself, she was very little disposed to approve them. They were in fact very fine ladies, not deficient in good humor when they were pleased, nor in the power of being agreeable where they chose it, but proud and conceited. They were rather handsome had been educated in one of the first private seminaries in town, had a fortune of 20,000 pounds, were in the habit of spending more than they ought, and of associating with people of rank, and were therefore in every respect entitled to think well of themselves, and meanly of others. They were of a respectable family in the north of England, a circumstance more deeply impressed on their memories than that their brother's fortune and their own had been acquired by trade. Now, Who's giving us all this information about the ladies? Is it the narrator? Yes. Is it Elizabeth thinking it? Yes. That's the beauty of it. We slide into Elizabeth's Elizabeth's thoughts without losing the masterful, assured voice of our narrator. We're seeing this through Elizabeth's reflecting, perceiving mind, and we know that it tells us something about her character that these are the details that matters to her, that she's aware of. This is how she sizes people up. This is her take on the topic. But we also don't lose our author's voice, the one that can roam freely wherever it wants, can give us information when we need it, can give us an overview, a social overview, a big-picture look, or a detail. We do this without italics and without quotation marks. This is a full paragraph, but we can get it in shorter doses too. That's how it works today in the hands of a capable novelist. We might get, Stuart came down the stairs for breakfast. Eggs again? His mother believed in eggs as a source of protein. She hated frosted flakes because of the sugary content and all the ads featuring Tony the Tiger, which she thought preyed upon the minds of youth like the cartoon camel that sold cigarettes. You hear how that works? We're getting a description of the mother, right? What matters to her, how she thinks. If it wasn't for coming down the stairs to breakfast, it would just be the author telling us something about Stuart's mother. But because of the first sentence, Stuart came down the stairs for breakfast. Eggs again? His mother believed in eggs, dot, dot, dot. That sets us up for what comes next. We know that we're also hearing Stuart's take on the mother. It brings us very close to Stuart. 
to be in his mind like this, watching a plot unfold and seeing a world through his eyes. That's what we owe to Jane Austen. And in some ways, it was perfect for her to develop this because I think in some ways she was the perfect person to do it because of her comedic style. The first sentence of the novel is extremely famous. It's elliptical and elusive and smart and sly. It draws us in. Let me put an asterisk here. We'll get back to this question, how it draws us in. Save that for a moment. Let's just look at the first sentence. Let me just tell you that this might be one of a handful of first lines that people have most committed to memory, like call me Ishmael, or all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I was reading this book for the first time. Several people saw the cover, noticed I was reading it, and just blurted out the first <laughs> blurted out the first line. Hey, it is a truth universally acknowledged. They'd go through it. They have it memorized, like to be or not to be. Once met a man working on a a boat on the Chicago River, and he he rattled off the whole to be or not to be soliloquy, something he had memorized. Something he could just say. People do that with this sentence too. They not only love the book, they know the first line and love that too. Let's look at why. Here's the line in all its glory. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Why do people love this? It's beautifully tempered. Beautifully phrased, has a perfect balance. Every word is in place, every note, the rhythm of it, everything works. But let's just note, first of all, when it comes to the content, that it's not because it is true, it's not profound on its face. The reason for loving this line is not a feeling of, hey, I never thought of this before. But have you ever noticed that single men with a fortune all want wives? No. Of course not. We know that it's not true. Some do and some don't. Some want to wait. Some are divorced and never want to marry again. Some are single and never want to get married. Or they're waiting for something else. They're focused on business. Who knows? So we know it's not true. But then again, it's not trying to be true. This is an omniscient narrator. But the omniscient narrator is not trying to give us the truth. All happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. That's a little bit different. That's trying to be profound. That's a statement about the world. That makes us think we might push back against it, but it is making a statement from a a point of view of omniscience. But this one is different. This one, a single man must be in want of a wife. Not is, must be. It's turning us away from the man and toward the people who are regarding the man, toward the people who assume that he wants a wife. Does he want a wife? He must. He has a fortune, after all. We know that there's a logical leap in that. Having a fortune doesn't change how you feel about wanting a wife. Maybe it does for some people, but not all. This is not... A profound statement about the man. It's a profound statement about the society, this particular society that treats a man like that. And we see now the truth is universally acknowledged. That gives us some insight into that phrase. Here's where we see the edge of Jane Austen. Everyone agrees this is true. And yet, I'm going to signal to you that it's probably an exaggeration. A truth universally acknowledged. That universally is so good there. The expansion out into the entire universe. The assumption there are men with good fortune. Let's all fall all over ourselves to find someone in our family to match up with them. Because if we don't, our neighbors will. And we're doing this in a kind of generous spirit. Because of course the man would want us to. Because he has a good fortune, so he must be in want of a wife. No need to wait for us to find find out that that's true. We can assume it, because while we're waiting, the family across the meadow will jump in front of us and put their daughter forward. Out of the goodness of their heart to relieve this poor man, this unfortunate man with a fortune. To relieve him of his burden of finding a wife, which we know he must want. 
That's all coming out of this, this beautiful first sentence, this attitude of society. And it continues. The whole book kind of works like that in a way. Wonderful. Here's the second paragraph, in case we miss this point of the, in the first sentence. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. <laughs> oh, this is so good. Now we know. We know clearly what we're dealing with. Families trying to get their hooks on a man of good fortune. That's the real truth here. That's our real subject. They'll be excited when a new man comes to town. They'll all, all the families will compete for his favor. And they may very well jump to conclusions. See some universal truths before they even know the feelings or views of such a man. And that, ladies and gentlemen, we have our novel. We have, we have the whole novel laid out for us. And we're only two sentences in. And we're already laughing to ourselves, and the sentences are already crackling with energy. This is Jane Austen, a 21-year-old genius, reading all the books in her father's library, especially the novels by Fielding and Richardson and Fanny Burney, and saying, there's no need for melodrama. My family and I would love reading a book where the heroes and villains aren't over-the-top characters, stark contrasts of black and white, but we take a look at the wheels turning in the society right here where we are. And we see all the ups and downs, the misunderstandings, the realizations, all right here. Now that is what draws us in. That's the power of Jane Austen. It's a subtle power, but it's nevertheless magnetic. Mag magnets are subtle forces too, aren't they? It's the power of comedic irony. It's funny to think of the people, mostly women in this book, but men too, who are setting forth on this escapade, this attempt to work within their society, to find husbands for their daughters, to act appropriately at the ball. But we're also set for disappointments, expectations and rejections, poor matches, the aging process, and a lack of fortune. What if the husband is mercenary and doesn't recognize the values of the daughter? That will hurt. All this is there too. We get to watch it unfold. And Jane Austen is so good that even when we've read the book more than once, we still think things might be different this time. Oh, this time so-and-so won't misinterpret that remark. This time they'll see each other clearly in this scene. The rest of the first chapter draws us in further as we see the comic energy of Mr. Bennett and his wife. Mrs. Bennett wants her husband to go visit the newcomer Mr. Bingley, unmarried in possession of a fortune. Mr. Bennett is claiming that he doesn't want to go. But we have five grown daughters, says his wife. You must. And we do later learn that Mr. Bennett pays the visit, but he's presenting himself to the family here and to us as someone who couldn't really be bothered, who's pushed around, who grumbles about his duties. This is a part of their exchange. Mrs. Bennett has just told her husband that she can't Visit Mr. Bingley until after Mr. Bennett has gone to see him first. Mr. Bennett is essentially sighing and grumbling that she should just go. He says, You are over-scrupulous, surely. I dare say Mr. Bingley will be very glad to see you, and I will send a few lines by you to assure him of my hearty consent to his marrying whichever he chooses of the girls, though I must throw in a good word for my little Lizzie. I desire you will do no such thing. Lizzie is not a bit better than the others, and I am sure she is not half so handsome as Jane, nor half so good-humored as Lydia. But you are always giving her the preference. They have none of them much to recommend them, replied he. They are all silly and ignorant like other girls, but Lizzie has something more of quickness than her sister's. Mr. Bennet, how can you abuse your own children in such a way? You take delight in vexing me. You have no compassion on my poor nerves. You mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They are my old friends. I have heard you mention them with consideration these twenty years at least. How marvelous this is. We see Lizzie as the favorite, and that the mother, who in one breath can accuse her husband of favoring Lizzie, is also running her down. 
She says she's not half as handsome as Jane, nor half so good-humored as Lydia. So it's not as if Lizzie is the favorite who gets everything from her parents. Because if she was, where would our narrative go from there? We'd expect to see her fail, wouldn't we? Expect, expect to see her disappointed, get her comeuppance. Instead, we're immediately rooting for her. Her mother doesn't think she measures up, but the father sees something. And don't we also want to privilege the one who's a little quicker than the others? The one who, maybe like our author, is sly and discerning and sees things a little more clearly than everyone else, who sits in our position, the one the author has granted us, of seeing through the hasty assumptions and social mores of the society, who knows that truths universally acknowledged says more about the acknowledgers than it does about the truths themselves. Joss Whedon, the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and a million other successful films and movies, was asked once how he made his main characters, the protagonists, who aren't necessarily physically strong, appear to be so strong and courageous. And he said, that's actually really easy. You just create a really strong character, enter them into the stage, and have your main character beat them at something. Jane Austen has something like that going here. How do you make your protagonist look smart and likable? You take a man like the father, who's merrily teasing his wife, his wife who isn't fully in on the joke. Then you tell us that that man's favorite is Lizzie, because she's quicker than other people. And we're in. We may come to admire all the other characters, but we have our Mr. Bennett and our Lizzie, the one he recommends for us, right here, right from the start. And then when Lizzie gets insulted early on by Mr. Darcy, and when we start to see her worldview come into place, we're drawn in. We want to know what will happen to her. Our sympathies are fully aligned. We've been conditioned by the author to want to root for Lizzie, and it happens starting with the very first sentence of the book. When the author suggests that this is a topic to be taken seriously, but not solemnly. We've traveled there through the short first three chapters, and by chapter four, we are locked in and ready for the ride. Mr. Bennett and his daughter Lizzie. Jane Austen was worried the book might be too frivolous, that it wasn't serious enough. Quote, the work is rather too light and bright and sparkling, she wrote. It wants shade. It wants to be stretched out here and there with a long chapter of sense, if it could be had. End quote. Some ideas she had for the chapter of sense, She's, she suggested maybe an essay on writing or on Sir Walter Scott or Napoleon. Hmm. She also said in another letter that she was well satisfied enough with the book, and she did say that she thought Lizzie was something new. I must confess, she wrote, that I think her as delightful a creature as ever appeared in print and how I shall be able to tolerate those who do not like her, at least, I do not know. Readers haven't missed the long chapter of sense. They've fallen in love with the light and the bright and the sparkling, and they agree with Jane Austen about Elizabeth, one of the most popular characters in all of literature. Mr. Bennett may have had some parallels with Mr. Austen, Jane's father, who valued what he saw in his daughter Jane. There was a lot of support within the Austin family for Jane's writings. Her brother Henry was a particular fan and supporter. And listen to this inscription that Mr. Austin wrote on a gift to his daughter, a notebook that he wanted her to fill. He wrote a title for what he expected to see in its pages, based on what he knew of his daughter and her talents. The title he gave the notebook was Effusions of Fancy by a Very Young Lady consisting of tales in a style entirely new. Can you just hear the pride in that? The pride and almost a little anxiety. How young you are, dear daughter, and yet how much you have already impressed us and will no doubt continue to do so. Your effusions of fancy are pleasures to us, and the style entirely new lets us all know we are in the presence of greatness. Let's stop on that happy note. We'll take a quick break, and then I'll come back with a story of my own of what happens when a family of four daughters starts living out the plot of Pride and Prejudice and makes the mistake of trying to draft Jack Wilson into their narrative. 
So I was in college and I had never heard of Jane Austen. I was assigned Pride and Prejudice in a course. And one of the women in my course was a friend of mine. I can call her a friend, although she was more a cousin of a friend of mine. I'd become friends with a guy in my dorm. One day he said, oh, I've got to go see my nerdy cousin, Agatha. Do you want to come with? Agatha is not her real name, by the way. A nerdy cousin, Agatha, who could turn that down? And Agatha and I, it turned out, had a course together. And she was kind of nerdy, but she was also affectionate toward her cousin. And I didn't mind getting to know her. And my friend and I went out to her house once or twice and had dinner with her and her family, her sisters, her parents. And then we were assigned Pride and Prejudice in our course, and all hell broke loose. It turned out that Agatha loved the novel, and so did her sisters. The four of them argued over who was Jane and who was Lydia and who was Elizabeth. I love this. I still love this. I love getting emails from people who tell me that they're wandering through life and they feel just like characters in certain books or certain landscapes or new houses or apartments remind them of a particular book. They feel like they're living in a great work of literature. I've always loved that, but these sisters maybe had taken things a little too far. They were obsessed with Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen in that world. They would argue over who was who, which sister was really the Lydia and which was the Elizabeth, the biggest prize, and who was Mr. Bingley in their life. They were looking for a Bingley and a Mr. Collins and a Mr. Darcy. So suddenly, here I am, a guy showing up at dinner. I'm single. I don't really have a fortune, but who cares? They have money. They're just trying to figure me out. Maybe my fortune is my sense of humor or my brains or my looks or my devotion to my friends or some other value. They would say things like that. We were wondering... We're trying to figure out if you're Mr. Darcy. We decided you were, but then we thought maybe you're Mr. Bingley. No, we changed our minds. Turns out you're Mr. Darcy. (laughs) What? I have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, I was reading the novel, but they were living it. And they had been living it for a long time, for many months. They were the children of immigrants. Their parents were from another country, spoke a different language, and they... The girls had been forced to fit into a high school full of rich kids where the girls were viewed and their family was viewed as kind of social climbers, new money. This was a very different world from the one I had grown up in. And these girls could be snobs to me about it sometimes. They made fun of things I didn't know and they assumed that that there were things that I couldn't know. They were shocked when they found out. I remember I went to see The Phantom of the Opera that fall because, come on, Who hadn't heard of the Phantom of the Opera in Chicago? It wasn't exactly a well-kept secret. It was big, over-the-top, highly advertised musical, Andrew Lloyd Webber, when he was at his peak. And Agatha's response was, We just couldn't believe it. How did you know about it? As if a kid from Wisconsin who's living in Chicago will somehow miss all the advertisements for a big, broad, Broadway show. Because I guess they thought I was too busy focused on farm things. I was fe- I was feeling a little odd, like I was being forced into the role of a play. And there was no script, or actually there was a script, but I wasn't being allowed to read it. The script was still being written. That was the problem. Agatha and her sisters were still writing the script. They were forcing me to play a part in their play. So now, keep in mind, this was all happening in a matter of weeks, all happening very quickly. It's Christmas of my first year at school. I've only been there since October, just a few weeks, and I'm trying to fit in and make friends, survive my classes, and the best friend I've made so far also has this cousin who's sort of my friend, Agatha, or at least she's latched onto me in a slightly strange way. I also have all my friends from high school, but who knows where that where that will end up. We live in different places now, and it's not clear who's going to keep in touch with one another. Some drifting apart seems inevitable. And I have at least a couple of very close friends who feel like brothers, who I think I'll never be apart from. But then again, who really knows? This was all new to me. And those friends, if I'm honest, maybe hadn't heard of the Phantom of the Opera. They didn't really read books. So maybe, even as I was defending myself as a normal human being and not some kind of Wisconsin rural hick, 
Maybe I needed to accept that there were two sides of me, a side that would stay in touch with the world and a side that would always be very, very local. And I would have some friends on one side and some friends on the other. I didn't really think any of this out in such a neat way, but I know those are the forces that were tugging on me at the time. So, Agatha Agatha announced dramatically that there had been a disaster in her family. Her younger sister has been insulted by a high school classmate named Alex, who has basically told the world that he thinks that she is not attractive. This is very much like the plot of Pride and Prejudice. I realize now maybe it was invented by these sisters, a way to put the wheels of their plot in motion. Instead, I didn't know that at the time, I just felt bad. I knew how badly high school boys could behave and how rude they could be and how hurtful. I felt bad for this sister. And so I guess I was ready. I was ready to accept the solution that Agatha was proposing. She announced the solution would be that I, Jack Wilson, must come to the Christmas cotillion. I confessed I had no idea what a Christmas cotillion was. That didn't matter. I was needed there to make everything right, to avenge the sister's honor or something. And a a cotillion turned out to be a debutante ball, which was almost laughable to me. I'd been to proms, I guess, but a cotillion was something a little more, something fancier, something more elaborate, something people paid for. It wasn't the high school gym being decorated with streamers. It was being held in a hotel, in a ballroom. thought of some reasons why I couldn't go. I wasn't dating her sister, for example. Not to worry, said Agatha. That's not expected. And then she gave out a big laugh. Oh, how could you even think that? I don't know, I said. I just, (laughs) I don't know what to think of any of this. I, I didn't know what any of it was about. The next reason that I gave was shot down as well. I said I wanted to spend some time with my friends, especially my friend Will, who I hadn't seen for a few months. Oh, said Agatha, he can come too. And I had a third reason. It sounds kind of expensive, this cotillion. Agatha had her final reply. My father will pay for everything. It cinched the deal. So, what the heck? College was all about strange things, new experiences. Who knew that I'd be going to the opera? or eating lunch five days in a row in Chinatown, or jumping in Lake Michigan when the weather was below freezing. So why not? A Christmas cotillion, whatever. Some kind, some kind of dance I've never heard of, and some, some father is going to pay for me and my friend to go and stay in a hotel and eat and rent tuxes? I guess that's what we should do. So my friend Will, that's not his real name either, my friend Will and I drove down to this thing in the Chicago suburbs, this Christmas cotillion. We checked into our hotel, and immediately there are problems. The father is furious at us, that's clear, and he's furious at the daughters who arranged all of this. He could barely look us in the eye. He's got, he comes in, storms out, doors are slamming. It's not just the money. Although I'm sure that was part of it too, but he was now out there as the father who had hired two college kids, two men, to crash the cotillion and be college guys with their mature bodies and who knows what kind of sinful habits. And he's put them up in a hotel and all of this was way more than the cotillion crowd wanted. It was bizarre. As we were waiting for the Evenings, festivities to begin, hanging out in the room. People would come to the door, knock. We'd open it, and they'd laugh or shriek and run away down the hall. (laughs) It was as if people were wondering if we were real, if the rumor was true, if Agatha's family had really done such a scandalous thing. Reminds me of Jane Austen's world, not in a literal sense, but in the sense of a world that, from the outside... You might not recognize what's a scandal and what's not, but once you're on the inside, within the confines of the world where you understand the rules and the parameters of the way things are done and the way things aren't done, you realize suddenly that you've committed a great transgression. A hotel room. You could almost hear the people whispering around, Did you hear? 
two college guys are there. I get this family brought them. They're staying in the hotel. Oh my God. Let's go see if that's real or just a rumor. It's embarrassing to think now about how I stumbled into this. I thought I was just going to a kind of dance. But this was the real deal. Important to a dozen or so of the finest families of the greater Chicago area. Luckily, I had the right guy with me. I'd known Will since the third grade, and he was as cool as anyone I've ever met. He exudes it. His coolness. He takes everything as it comes, and he's comfortable in his own skin. And the two of us were ready to just be ourselves and let the chaos swirl around us. Maybe we found it a little amusing, and why wouldn't we? It's not often you get to check into a a hotel room and do nothing out of the ordinary. We probably watched some TV and showered and put on our tuxes. That was about it. And no, it's not often you get to do that and know that around you, everyone is buzzing at your presence. It's like being a celebrity. Maybe I felt a little weird about how we had gained this celebrity, like those guys who graduate from high school, come back to prom when they're 23 or something. But I was only 18 now that I think about it. 18 years old, I had a new status as a college man. Let's see what this form of celebrity is like. Let's see what it's like to do this. That's what it was for us. We were just on a road trip, driving down, killing time, hanging out, free meals, whatever, a dance, whatever. Maybe we'd meet someone there, have some fun. And for me, it was also a kind of bridge, this road trip. I had my high school friend, Will, who had been almost like a brother for 10 years. And now the new world I was crashing into in college where wealthy people lived on the coast or in the suburbs and had gone to elite high schools and had money for expensive clothes and who didn't spend their time as I had in high school working part-time jobs and playing sports trying to figure out a way out of my hometown. They didn't need to move up any further. They were already up. So they were reading Jane Austen and watching Masterpiece Theater and developing plots for themselves to make life more interesting. I didn't worship wealth, but I recognized it. And I recognized learning and education and all the things I hadn't really had. Maybe this was part of it. Maybe this was where I was headed. I knew I didn't belong in the old world. I couldn't change the oil in a car, let alone take apart an engine and put it back together. I couldn't fix a tractor. When I had driven one tractor during one of my efforts to work on a farm, I had three hired hands falling all over themselves laughing and a man swearing that if he ever saw me try to drive a tractor again, he'd call for a shotgun to put me out of my misery. What did I have and what was I giving up? What would I gain if I joined this new world with Christmas cotillions? And what would I lose? What about my friend Will? Where would he fit in? I had a hundred high school friends, and it would be inevitable that some of them wouldn't be my close friends forever. Would he? So eventually, it was time for us to make our way down to the ballroom, and we go to this dance, and our hosts are almost too thrilled to show us off. It's just enough that we're there, scandalizing the place. College kids brought to a high school. Christmas cotillion, and Will, who was extremely handsome and a good dancer, became the star of the dance. He was 18 in college, and the 15, 16, and 17-year-olds were agog. The girls loved him. The boys, not so much. They're furious and fuming and doing what they can to embarrass us, and there are ways they can do that. There are things we don't know about their world We play basketball, not piano or violin. We weren't Ivy League or hadn't aspired to it. We didn't know the the rules of that game. My friend hadn't even really read any books. Not saying he wasn't intelligent. He was sensitive. He got people. Emotionally intelligent, very emotionally intelligent. But there were ways for high school kids from the suburbs to try to embarrass us. All the things in their world, like the weird private college that Alex was thinking about going to. They all wanted to get into it. I had never heard of it. It only took 12 students a year or something. It was some kind of retreat. It's in Colorado. Oh my God. It was it was crazy to them that we had never heard of this place. Showed what 
lower class people we were. And the father, the poor father, I think, was just befuddled about all this. He was an immigrant trying to protect his daughters and give them everything. Here, he had let them force him into causing a scandal. He's introduced a scandal. He's even paid for it on his credit card. Our room was the subject of rumors. Who was going up there? Who's seen it? Who was coming back from there? Someone would leave. Had you been to the room? My friend and I were barely even in this room. We definitely weren't doing anything wild in there. But everyone was talking about it. It was the palace of sin. The taboo chamber. Ugh. We were hearing that girls had bragged that they would go. That they weren't afraid. And Will and I just shook our heads. What was happening? This is what cotillions foster, people. Girls were leaving their parents, becoming women, becoming independent. It is literally a coming out event. It is very Jane Austen in that sense. None of it made any sense to me at all. But for them, it was an anticipated event. You talked about it all year, for several years. The discussion, the gossip would be, the Christmas cotillions of past and near future. What happened two years ago and last year? And what will be... What will people be talking about next year when they look back at this one? Well, that seemed clear. (laughs) It would be us, my friend and me, and Agatha's family. Agatha and her sisters, for whatever reason. They probably had a good reason for wanting us there. They probably did believe they were slighted in some way, and this was a way to avenge it. A plot that makes some sense. For whatever reason, they wanted to shock the system, and they had. So we danced and did our best to make small talk and eat a little and smile at the parents and assure them that we actually did go to college and weren't trying to marry any of their daughters that evening. Will and I were trying to be harmless. There was also a sense that things were building. Behind the scenes all around us, there was anger at this scandal, this transgression. The upstart family had forced something on the establishment, and the establishment didn't like it. And then everything fell apart. Someone accused Agatha's father of paying for the deviation, which was unacceptable, and he responded in a way that betrayed his anger, his frustration. With us, with me and my friend, it started to get heated. I thought we might get in a fight. I could picture Will and I punching our way out to the car, escaping in our rented tuxes, heading for the border and the safety of Wisconsin. Instead, there was a father who was still paying for all of our bills with a very red face, blurting things out at his daughters, very angry, blurting things at one of the other fathers who had put his finger in in Agatha's father's face. He was upset that his son had been upstaged by the two college boys. Our dance cards were full. And (laughs) just writing that sentence, you could only know what a crazy idea that was for me back then. To have a full dance card. Felt like I had been thrown backwards in time 200 years. Our dance cards were full. But meanwhile, a high schooler was having trouble. Alex. He was upset that he wasn't the star. An entitled high schooler was upset that we, just by being in college, had all the glory that he'd wanted. This was supposed to be his season, his turn at the Christmas cotillion. And nobody cared. It was insane, but somehow we got the word that the father, the man paying our bills, didn't want us to dance with anyone. But then he did. It was confusing. Everyone was angry. The cotillion was coming apart, and I had no idea what to do. I couldn't offer to pay for the room. It was not that long ago that I was making three fifty an hour selling shoes. For God's sake, I was saving up to buy a Macintosh computer. I didn't have hundreds of dollars for a hotel room and a tux. For me and my friend, worse, we were pulling down the cotillion. The dance floor cleared. Music was playing, but there was no dancing. Everyone was trying to figure out what to do with us instead. What was going to happen? Did everyone just go home? We had scandalized the place. Agatha would run over, say things like, If you have to pay for the room, do you have the money on you? I'm not saying you'll have to. I'm just asking. (laughs) Then she'd run back to her family speak to her father, 
other language, then run back to us. She'd say, it's okay. You guys can stay for at least another hour. And that's basically the end of the dance anyway. (laughs) Nobody was dancing. It was so strange. Will and I luckily had 10 years of experience together. We'd been through just about everything. We knew how to handle ourselves, what to care about, what not to care about, how to detach, how to just be two people in a big room. And then, in the midst of all this fog of uncertainty, my friend took action. Will walked across the dance floor and found Agatha's youngest sister. She was probably about eight years old. He held out his hand, and she took it, thrilled, and he started a very simple and a very beautiful dance with twirls and that kind of thing. She was in heaven, and she was adorable. She danced, twirled, and everyone smiled. At the end, everyone applauded, and I was marveling that my friend had thought of this and that he had pulled it off with such elegance and style. And I was marveling, but really I wasn't surprised because that was the sort of thing that he just did. He's done it for as long as I've known him. He just knows what to do and how to be, and he makes decisions quickly and follows through on them, and people admire him for it. And he's done it. It's all done with a kind of grace and humility. And everyone ends up admiring him and wanting to know him better. And only the most stubbornly narcissistic people view him with resentment. Not saying Alex came over and pounded him on the back. Alex was still in his stew of of fury. But everyone else was taking pictures and applauding, and then people started dancing. It was the end of the dilemma showed that Will and I were there, we were harmless, so let's just have some fun, let's focus on these young people in their nice clothes, and we will just fade into the background and celebrate along with the rest of everyone else, that these are young people taking the next step into the next phase of their lives, and that can be celebrated, even if it's a little odd at the Christmas Cotillion, it's still a little odd to me, this fancy ball this coming out party, but I've learned not to judge any subcultures because they're all different from within and the mood in the room lifted and people came by to say hello and wish us well and nobody talked about us leaving the dance anymore and Agatha came over. She came over to me, this friend that she's known for a couple of weeks and she's put through the ringer. This guy who showed up at her Christmas cotillion to save her, to avenge her sister, the wrong that her sister had suffered and who had brought his friend along. That's me. All the things I've done for Agatha. And Agatha came up and said, you're not Darcy. Your friend is Darcy. (laughs) I had no idea what she meant, really. Just that she was living in a kind of fantasy world. And Will, my friend, my brother, that was the real world. That's how I felt. I knew where my choice would be from then on. As much as I loved literature, Pride and Prejudice, I was learning about it, Jane Austen. As much as I loved all that stuff that was new to me, I knew the path I would follow. I wasn't going to jump into the world of Christmas cotillions and daughters living out their masterpiece theater dreams. I would stay in the world of snowmobiles and Green Bay Packers and old friends like Will. He's still my best friend, through thick and thin. The other night, he and my other best friend, the three of us texted each other for an hour in a group chat. It was awesome. My relationship with Agatha, however, has faded. She wrote me an angry letter a few years after that, demanding that I write her back and give her some kind of assurances about our friendship or we could never be friends again. And I shrugged and missed the deadline. It had a need for me to play some kind of role that I could never quite figure out. I represented something for her. I just never knew what it was exactly or why I was the one who was needed to play it. I was a little insulted by how much she assumed about me. Anyway, I'm sure she's doing fine now. I hope she has found her real Darcy. And I hope that for everyone, especially for young people who are reading Jane Austen because they want a little more brightness or sparkle to their lives, especially those who are coming of age in high schools where brightness and sparkle are hard to come by. Jane Austen is as marvelous as it gets. Her books are wonderful. I 
reach for analogies of other man-made achievements, like maybe the pyramids of Egypt. You can enjoy them for their triumphant expression of human accomplishment, both the novels of Jane Austen and the pyramids. You can spend as much time as you want with them and never lose that feeling. In fact, the feeling might deepen. And even when you learn more about them, you don't lose respect for the creators and the efforts that it took to create them. There are techniques, but they are still wondrous accomplishments. In the case of Jane Austen, you can see what she does and how she does it, but it doesn't take away from the pleasure. It only adds to it. We owe so much to this very young lady who gave us her effusions of fancy in a style completely new. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Don't worry, that's not the last we'll be hearing of Jane Austen. Such a wonderful stop on this journey we're taking. You can find more at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com, or on Twitter at writerjack. Our friend and podcast partner Mike Palindrome can be found at literaturesc. Check out his book recommendations there. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Write a review and get a free literary postcard with a special literary quote just for you. I've heard back from a few postcard recipients who have framed theirs or put them on their nightstand or are using them as bookmarks in their favorite book. How lovely. Just more of the history of literature shared experience, which has meant so much to me these past several months. So if you're a listener, whether you've been here from the start or just now signing on, send me an email, tell me about yourself, and include your address. I would love to send you one as an expression of my gratitude and a token of my esteem. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time 